Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 183, the These Immortal Souls Marry Me Lie Lie 12 inch. We are big fans of The Birthday Party, Crime in the City Solution, Roland S. Howard. We had Harry Howard on before. And on this episode, we continue the These Immortal Souls story with this awesome 12-inch. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Genevieve McGuckin's on the show. Yeah, it's a fantastic interview. And kind of like last week's interview with uh, Everett, I could listen to this interview all day long. Such great stories and just a great perspective. Really cool to hear from, like, right from Genevieve. So cool. Yeah, for sure. All right, Brent, before we get going, though, some spiels, perhaps? Yeah. Shall I go? You shall. Okay, I have a new theme for you, Ryan. A new spiel. Okay. I'm calling it Relating Dudes to Jazz. Oh, hey, I've got a jazz spiel for you in mind. Go for it. Okay. So, I tr- these are new except for this first one. I-, I try and keep track of what Bill Laswell is up to. I'm a fan of much of his work, and there's lots of it. Yeah. He's unbelievably prolific. I've long considered a, a Laswell sp- spiel, so I should probably just get that done. Bill's Bandcamp is just a treasure trove. And he recently added uh, his jazz fusion record from 1997 with Tony Williams called Ark of the Testimony. Uh, Tony, of course, is a legendary jazz drummer. And Mm -hmm. this was the last recording he played on. He passed away suddenly from a heart attack during the production of this record. Uh, So if you don't know the career of Tony Williams, like strap in and check it out. His group Lifetime is... Mm. Is up there for me, sure, for sure. Robert Christgau described him as probably the best drummer in the world. It's hard to, <laughs> hard to argue with that. Yeah, when you're good, you're good. I believe he and Laswell first played together on the Pill Sessions for album in 86. Oh, no way. Yeah. This album is one I can listen to over and over again. Great supporting cast, too, from reg- regular Laswell collaborators like Nick Scopolitis, Pharaoh uh, Sanders is on it, Buckethead. It kind of ranges from, you know, more atmospheric type of pieces to just raging full-on fusion. So that's an older record, but it's kind of new in the sense that uh, it's got some updated artwork and it's, I think it has a bonus track and it's up on, brand new, up on Bill Laswell's Bandcamp. Okay, Ryan, a go-to label for me that I know I've talked about lots of times, the great Norwegian label Rune Gramophone. Dude, I've actually got a Rune Gramophone-esque recommend for you. Hit it. Okay. Uh, The band is Sex Magic Wizard. It's their their second full-length, but first for Rune. Fans of Bushman's Revenge will love this. It's jazz rock for sure. A crazy-ass rhythm section. Uh, Sigrid Aftret on sax. She's a monster. But the star for me is guitarist and main composer Victor Bomstad. Hmm. The the bio says, raised on a diet of Hendrix, Sabbath, and Zeppelin before being introduced to the music of Django Reinhardt, which is probably the case with most of my favorite jazz guitarists, I think. Oh, no way. Yeah. This is brand new, so dig into that. Uh, and also brand new on Rune Gramophone is the new Crocophant. 
Uh, oh yeah, you've recommended them to me as well as Bushman's Revenge before. Yeah, this is this is the second release by what they call Crocofont with, and I'm going to butcher these names because they're Norwegian, Strålaken and Hockerflaten. This is the core of Crocofont with uh, Stale Strålaken on keys and Ingbright Hockerflaten on bass. It's proggy, it's rockin', guitar-based jazz. Uh, the entire band are just insanely talented, and the writing is just super inventive and really takes you on a ride. This one's a top 10 contender for me. So check that really? out. Really? Yeah. What, what's the name again? Uh, it's the new Crocofront, but yeah. what's it, the album? I think it's called Five. Five, okay. Yeah, but it's not their fifth record. It's their mm. second with this lineup. They did one a couple years ago, years ago called Q that was also really good. And That's the one that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Ryan, the, the new John Zorn. And when I say new, I'll be more specific because he's got seven releases so far this year <laughs> alone, just under his own name. Yeah. This one's called Nostradamus, Death of Satan, and it's the latest by the group he composes for and, conduct, and conducts called Simulcrum. Mm-hmm. Talked a lot about them. Kenny yep. Krahowski on drums, John Modeski on organ, Matt Hollenberg on guitar. Again, the music ranges from traditional jazz, atmospheric moody pieces to just shred-tastic jazz rock. Modeski's organ always gives things an interesting flavor, almost like a deep purple John Lord thing at times. I just, okay. lo- I just love it. Yeah. So is it is there fret melting and reed melting oh yeah on that yeah, yeah. well no nice. no real reed melting zorn doesn't, no zorn doesn't play on it oh, okay yeah it's just a production of his yeah gotcha uh but all in all ryan i've been pretty preoccupied by three releases that came out in more or less the same week by three of my favorite bands so i'm just in heaven right now and all three of these are like album bands that require multiple listens so i'm busy really busy studying there's the always reliable Nick Solomon released his 24th studio album as The Bevis Frond. It's called Little Eden. Definitely a future classic. Uh, the Manic Street Preachers released a record called Ultra Vivid Lament. Their follow-up to 2018's Resistance is Futile, which was a top 10 pick for me that year. Uh, definitely feels like a grower, but uh, usually the best albums are. And yeah. Lan- Lanigan sings on a track on that record actually mm. and then the new iron maiden record Sen- oh yeah I've seen, yeah and and well a new maiden record is always a major event for me and <laughs> when one's coming out and you see that it's an hour and a half in length and that's cause for considerable excitement and it, uh, you know anticipation they go full my war on this one ryan and save what? Uh, yeah, there's three 10-minute-plus Steve Harris-penned epics as the final three songs on the record. Wow. Yeah, I hope I get to see them play this live. Yeah. yeah, I'm not much of a fan, but I know you are, and I know that would be a big event around the house for you. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, time for a new tattoo, probably. Maybe, yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for me. What do you have, Ryan? Cool. So... I actually missed one of uh, the items I wanted to mention as part of my list spiel, the in case you missed it spiel. I forgot to mention that uh, Super Chunks 
Here's to Shutting Up album is getting a 20th anniversary reissue with a bonus disc of demos. Everyone should check that out. It's uh, it's always good news when there's new Super Chunk, even if it's an album that I basically have memorized. They also, to coincide with this though, released their tour documentary called Quest for Sleep. It's for free now on YouTube. It's a great slice of of indie rock touring Japan, the UK, the US, uh, well worth your time to sit down and watch that awesome Super Chunk tour documentary, Quest for Sleep, and keep your eyes out for that reissue of Here's to Shutting Up. The other one that I wanted to mention last week during the Everett Shock episode, and I forgot, was about this band, Shovelhead Brand. Remember Shovelhead? The Canadian one? The Canadian one, yes. Now, I am pretty sure we mentioned them before on the pod, but I randomly listened to them in the same week that I was gearing up for Everett. And I don't I don't know why, but for those who who don't know, Shovelhead, that's S-H-O-V-L-H-E-D, Shovelhead. Uh, they are an act associated with No Means No because John Wright produced their record, Stove Boy Serves Daily Special, Ken Kempster, which was No Means No's second touring drummer like when they had two kits going he's also also was the drummer for the Hanson brothers guitarist scott henderson runs incentive records that put out the classic pigment vehicle record perfect cop mustache he's a legendary western canadian indie engineer and producer he was also in showbiz giants with tom holliston and john wright from no means no it goes on and on and on but i randomly listened to stove boy uh, last week while gearing up for Everett Shock, and I was reminded that on that record, and I think this is what we mentioned before uh, when we brought up this band Shovelhead, that there's a song on it called D Boone's Shoes. Mm. So there's a bit of an SST reference there to mention for folks to check out this band Shovelhead. But the other thing that was blowing my mind while listening to them that I had kind of forgotten about, like they do these insane covers on their and I think they only have two full lengths. Uh, this one, Stove Boy, serves Daily Special. And then the prior one was a cassette called Proud as a Moose. And each version of the cassette had different covers on it. Like they would cover James Brown, King Crimson, Frank Zappa. Just to give you a sense of like what this band is like. You should check them out. Their reference to D. Boone's Shoes. That Well, the name of that song and reference to D. Boone. It just reminded me to mention that it's probably a better fit with last week's episode, but fans of SST should check out Shovelhead for sure. Yeah, I have that record, and I probably haven't listened to it in over 20 years. So, Oh, take it out. Take it out. It's, it. a, it's a it's a mind-blower. Like, why doesn't anyone know about this record? And they are such insane musicians. Like, yeah. it's it's wild. Okay, here's my jazz recommend for you that I was, uh, I was gearing up. I've had this one for a while. My buddy... Jerry recommended this one to me, a new album by William Parker. Do you know this bass player from New York, William Parker Brent? Uh, I know the name, but yeah, I'm not super fam- familiar with his work. Yeah, William Parker. This is a this is a recommend for you, hundred percent. The new record that I've been digging is called Mayan Space Station. Uh, William, unsurprisingly, has played with Zorn, of course. Uh, that may be where you've seen his name. One of his longest running combos is the Little Huey Creative Music Orchestra. Uh, One of his most frequent collaborators is Matthew Shipp, another guy like 
these are a bunch of guys that we've heard a million times, but maybe we just haven't noticed. Now it's time to dig deeply into William Parker. On this record, though, and the reason I wanted to recommend it to you, and the reason that it reminded me of Rune Gramophone. Like, I didn't plan this. I had, like, a Rune Gramophone-related spiel, and this is it. Ava Mendoza is on guitar on this record, um, this Mayan space station record, and really remind like really tasty guitar and really reminded me of some of the stuff on rune gramophone that you've hipped me to over the years mm -hmm. also her playing also now and then kind of reminds me of anthony pirog from Domesthetics and others so you you've definitely turned me on to some rune gramophone stuff some stuff on you know just a few minutes ago that i'll have to check out but i wanted to send this right back at you william parker mine space station it's good i'll check it out yeah. That's all I got, man. Okay. You promised a Brant's rant. I was I was playing makeup session here. I got a Brant's rant for you next week. I want to get to this interview with Genevieve. It's so good. All right, man. History lesson, part one. All right. So we're back with These Immortal Souls. First, make sure you also go back and listen to the, uh, the episode that we had Harry Howard on, SST-164, for the full length, because they really go together. You listen to these episodes together and Harry and Genevieve's interviews together. It's a great pairing. Also, of course, rewatch Autoluminescent, the great documentary on Roland S. Howard, which Genevieve co-produced. Pick up your copy of Inner City Sound by Clint Walker. But for a quick reminder, These Immortal Souls, formed in London... I'm going to say 1985 to 1986-ish, because I feel like there wasn't like an actual specific day or year. This is really something that Roland and Genevieve and some others around them in their kind of collective were cooking up as the birthday party was winding down, I'm yeah. going to say. Yeah. Um, so after Roland left the birthday party, that's really when these immortal souls started to formulate. On drums... We've got Epic Soundtracks, otherwise known as Kevin Paul Godfrey, Nikki Sutton's brother. Epic Soundtracks was, of course, in Swell Maps, Crime and the City Solution with Roland. Also has some solo records. Um, and I believe in the interview, Brent, you also mentioned that possibly, you know, an early version of These Immortal Souls actually had Barry Adamson on drums, hey? Yeah, we mentioned that last time because he gets it right. Yeah. I think he plays on the full length. He plays on one track on the full length, yeah. yeah. Um, Barry, of course, from Magazine and The Bad Seeds, too. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, when his book comes out in a week or two here if he talks about any of this stuff. I'm sure he does. Yeah, how could he not? Yeah. That this is, this is amazing stuff. Um, this musical collective, like, that had come from Australia and was hanging out in the UK and went to Berlin. It's awesome. Just a great story. On bass, of course, Harry Howard, also from Crime and the City Solution, went on to play guitar in Pink Stainless Tail, one of the best band names of all time. Um, also fronting Harry Howard and the NDE. I've also mentioned uh, a couple of times already on guitar and vocals, Roland S. Howard. Um, that we're, we're just such big fans of Roland, all of his work. Um, of course, came from the Young Charlatans. And the boys next door, which kind of morphed into the birthday party, where he spent his time uh, really collaborating, working with that band, until he left and went on to form these immortal souls. 
Roland is also known for the amazing collaborations, which you mentioned in the interview with Lydia Lunch and Nikki Sudden, Epic Soundtrack's brother, as I said. Roland was in Crime and City Solution. He also has some great solo records like Pop Crimes and Teenage Snuff Film. Then, of course, we get to our guest, Genevieve McGuckin. Born in Brisbane, singer, songwriter, keyboard, piano player, film producer, graphic designer, longtime collaborator, and someone who is close to Roland, even when they weren't an item, always close to Roland. And like Roland, moved to London when the birthday party did, essentially. Mm-hmm. Genevieve also collaborated with Roland when he was in the birthday party. Um, I can't remember whether it's mentioned in this upcoming interview or back when we uh, had Harry on, but she co-wrote some uh, songs on the Prayers on Fire debut LP from the birthday party, Capers and Ho Ho. She played on Howard and Lydia's cover of Lee Hazelwood's Some Velvet Morning. She's also on Lydia and Roland's Honeymoon and Rent album, wrote the song Three Kings, for example played on and co-wrote the song Silver Chain from Roland's Teenage Snuff Film album. And then, of course, really helped define the sound of these immortal souls, I would say. It's definitely got Roland's voice, Roland's guitar, but Genevieve gave the these immortal souls something special to really make it stand out. Their, their first album, Get Lost, Don't Lie, that's SST 164, also released on Mute in 1987. They also released a second full-length, I'm Never Gonna Die Again, 1992, on Mute. They eventually relocated from Europe back to Melbourne in around 1994 or so, and then eventually disbanded in 1998. Um, as I said, you know, Genevieve has got a, a real distinctive sound that really defines these immortal souls, and especially this 12-inch, too. Like, from the first few bars of this 12-inch, it's like, okay... Genevieve is really present on it. Um, And it sounds like, you know, you'll hear in the interview, which I really appreciated. It's another one of those stories, too, where it sounds like she had really cool parents who had good music around the house. And, uh, man, you hear that over and over and over. I just loved hearing all those stories, hey? Yeah, totally, man. It makes a big difference. For sure. Yeah. Anything else we should hit on before we toss it over to the interview? Uh, I have a few things, but let's uh, let's get this interview going with Genevieve. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Genevieve McGuckin. Genevieve, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Brent, for having me. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can take me back to your childhood. You were born in Brisbane? Yeah, I, I was born in Brisbane. I actually lived in Melbourne um, until I was about school age, and then we moved to Brisbane um, again, after coming down to Melbourne so Dad could go to uni. And then I grew up in Brisbane, uh, which is very different from Melbourne, very hot and was more of a sort of big country town in those days. But I was very lucky. My dad had really good taste in music and used to tape um, a radio show called Room to Move that was on at 10.30 at night after my bedtime and it had... Um, you know, David Bowie and Velvet Underground. And he liked more sort of Leonard Cohen and Jacques Brel and sort of early blues. But he taped all this music for me on these sort of three-hour tapes and cassettes. And I developed 
my taste in music and then went to see the saints uh-huh. um, in 1974 <laughs> yeah. uh, famous concert at queensland uni where they all ended up jumping in the pool and some in the river and uh, and then worked uh, to buy myself a guitar and um, took myself down to Melbourne. I left home when I was 16. I was very sort of young for my, went to uni when I was 16. Ah. But uh, went to Melbourne with some sort of thought of writing or making films, actually. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and meeting people to do with music. But um, had no idea I was going to end up where I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Melbourne was the place to do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was like sort of finding your tribe, you know. Uh, in Brisbane, nobody understood my taste in music. Uh, you had to order your records three months in advance from a funny little record import store in an arcade. And uh, the NME came three months late, you know, <laughs> <laughs> after it was shipped out. And in Melbourne, I just started, you know, going to gigs and finding people around me who were really young as well, um, who all had similar, if you know, not always exactly the same, but similar taste in music and really great people as well, really interesting and funny. And uh, I started going to see The Boys Next Door and The Young Charlatans. Yeah. yeah. So when's the first time you met Roland? I met Roland, I'd seen Roland around, um, Everyone always told me he was gay, <laughs> which couldn't have been further from the truth, really, although he, he had a very androgynous sort of look. But right. um, I, I used to see him at gigs, and he was always sort of busy, always, you know, talking and doing things. And, um, and then when I started to go and see his band, The Young Charlatans, I met him through Nick, actually, because I met Nick first. Mm. And actually went out with Nick for a tiny bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, Roland and I became really good friends during that. And Roland and then we became confidants. And um, yes. And then that just developed. <laughs> so, right. So that whole yeah. scene with, you know, the boys next door and the young charlatans and all, you know, was that really separate from like, say, the Birdman scene? Or did, was... Were they interchangeable? Uh, well, it was divided by cities, really. The Birdman scene um, was a little bit earlier and a bit sort of more rough, I guess. It, it, not rough. Um, it was Sydney. It was just very Sydney-based. And so, um, you know, they'd come down to Melbourne and playing sort of the birds in these pubs or something and <laughs> um, cause havoc and then disappear again. Yeah. Whereas the bands in Melbourne played, you know, like two or three times a week each, you know, so there was always something to do, uh, always somewhere to go. And so it was a bit different. Um, um, and they were older too. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was wondering, if there was a bit of an age divide there. You know, when three years age difference <laughs> or four years, like, seems like the world. For sure. Because Roland was only 16 when I met him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you're playing guitar at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your your kind of your first instrument. So, were you trying to start a band at that point, 
or did you have one? Um, I sort of played with a friend of mine, Murray Hoy, who was then in um, some sort of uh, lesser known Melbourne, but really great bands with Ollie Olson, who was in um, The Young Charlatans. Uh, she was in a band called No, she was a great singer. And so we just had the two of us really. But, um, you know, Roland liked my guitar playing, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I always played the piano. I mean, I, you know, I played keyboards since I was, well, not keyboards, but piano since I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, uh, you know, it didn't appeal to me as much. It wasn't as exciting as playing guitar. For sure. But then after, just before Roland joined the birthday party, Mick Harvey and Roland moved into my flat with me and they, they were sharing a bedroom and I slept in the lounge room. <laughs> And they were playing guitar and I had a piano and I wanted to play with them, you know, so I just started playing the piano more, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like how early on did you, do you th suppose you and Roland discussed starting something, a, a project together? Well, we always played together, you know, so, um, but for some reason, I mean, I wasn't very confident about being in a band. Um, Simon Bonney asked me to join Crime and the City Solution or to audition. Right. Um, and I think I I went and, you know, hid myself in some abandoned house nearby <laughs> or something and, and didn't turn up. Um, it was very much a boys thing playing in bands in those days. And, yeah. and um, you know, I, I didn't uh, ascribe to that. Uh, philosophy at all, but I must admit that I I wasn't uh, incredibly confident. But I did play in a, a sort of fun group with Nick and Roland and Mick Harvey and Tracy and a girl called Vicky Bonnet who sang. And we we used to do covers for parties. So you know we'd do uh, Wearing with the In Crowd and um, Hall of Mirrors and <laughs> this really strange sort of uh, you know Velvet Underground songs and I'll be your mirror. We just did all these songs that we wanted to hear, you know, but couldn't get to hear live. <laughs> and okay. I played guitar in that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And now, Nick played organ. Yeah. It was around 1980 that you moved to London? Yeah. So um, I met Roland in 77. We got together in 78 and we went in <clears throat> January 1980 to London. Yeah, which was a bit of a shock. <laughs> Culture shock for you? Uh, yeah. Um, well, much. To, I mean, it, one thing about Melbourne is it's quite inclusive in a way. There's. It used to be the north side of the river against the south side of the river, and the cult and hippies against the, you know, post-punk people or whatever. Um, in a way, it was divided into tribes, but England was was really hard to sort of get into and reviews of the boys next of the birthday party were saying things about cork hats and you know kangaroos like absolutely nothing to do with the band just they were just stuck on this colonial cliches. thing and it was mm, more difficult to meet people i think and it was cold and it was expensive and mm. yeah it was very different yeah now mm. did you have an idea when you moved there that you would try and start a project there? 
Yeah, well, I always really wanted to. Um, and that was one of the things with, with um, finding that the English took a, a long time to sort of get to know you. Um, and, you know, in Melbourne, you could just sort of say, let's play together and that would be it, you know. Um, uh, and you'd sit down and give it a go. But uh, yeah. in London, it was very, very different. And so I didn't really get to play. I used to play with Roland and, you know, sometimes he'd use silly bits of my guitar for a birthday party song or, mm-hmm. you know, Nick rang up and said, can I use the lyrics for Capers and this stupid sort of bit of prose that I'd written? <laughs> and I'd think, yeah, okay. But I wasn't really doing anything. And then Lydia came in 1982 mm-hmm. and she asked me to play on her... Um, on some velvet morning, I played on some velvet morning with her and Roland and Barry Adamson and yeah. Mick Harvey. And Roland tricked me. He said, "We're not even going to listen, Jen. Just go in there and just play along and see if you can work something out." And they taped it, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed you. You you know you start getting some writing credits around this time on the material that would end up on honeymoon in red and some birthday party stuff so obviously you're you're starting to write by this point or you have been for a while maybe yeah yeah it, i think yeah it was just a matter of um you know going over there with with the birthday party all the girls really well we were sort of going where they went you know and then they were on tour all the time and it was really difficult to get anything together that wasn't when somebody just asked you and actually paid you like Lydia did to go to Berlin and make a record, you know. Mm. Yeah, of course. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, we'll do that. What was that like, going to Berlin for the first time? Oh, it was fantastic. We stayed in a hotel that was run by two East Germans who'd escaped um, across a river and... um, it was amazing, you know, there was an old lady in the next room who was George Gross, the German expressionist painters, like <laughs> old girlfriend, and, you know, I was just blown away by all of this. Um, and there, there was Einstein and Neubauten, and, you know, there, there were people um, in Berlin, it was really inspiring, because they were making a living out of music, you know, they were... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all doing things and all making a living out of either art or music or whatever they were doing. So, yeah. you know, there was a feeling of like, oh, thank God. And they were friendly and they liked us. Sounds <laughs> and they like. they didn't talk about kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like moving there was a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A yeah. um, little bit off topic, but kind of relevant. I'm a huge Nikki Sudden fan and a Jacobites fan. So I'd love to just, when I say Nikki and Roland together, like what comes to mind? What, what were they like together? Hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, they, they really loved each other. It was, it was quite um, charming. You know, Nikki had, uh, he, he was a sort of antiquarian book collector and Roland had a lot of his own idiosyncrasies and they just sort of, you know, uh, were both like people from another time, either the past or the future or (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) And 
they both had this sort of almost aristocratic thing about them somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not at all snooty or, or anything, but just uh, they had this uh, belief in themselves, which was really great, and just this absolute um, enthusiasm about music and, um, like, recording Kiss You, Kidnap, Sharabank, that was just wonderful for me because a lot of the time um, I just got to, you know, sit around and listen to them playing these amazing slide guitars. And <laughs> it, it was heavenly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they were both so happy. And we were in the middle of the country in London and um, it was just uh, in this old church that actually belonged uh, – the studio belonged to a member of Jethro Tull, which is <laughs> <laughs> about as far away musically as you, you could get, but really lovely guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he lived next door and um, it was just a really lovely sort of place to be, you know, mm-hmm. musically and whatever. And Roland really enjoyed it. Okay, so did you meet Epic through Nikki, or the other, or the other way around? The other way around. Yeah. yeah. Um, Roland and, and Epic both had a job at Mute Records, um, listening to new music that would get sent in and recommending bands to uh-huh. Daniel Miller. And in the three years they both worked there, they didn't recommend a single thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some of the bands they rejected went on to be really big, but, you know, they didn't like them, so they didn't care. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. But uh, that's how they met, and Epic had the best record collection, you know, just amazing record collection, thousands and thousands of vinyls, you know, going back to Beach Boys and... Um, just everything that you could imagine Epic had. I used to spend days around at his place making cassettes for when we went on tour because, you know, you could just... Because you had to, it take, took a long time in those for days sure, to make yeah. compilation cassettes. <laughs> it did, yeah. It's a lost art. <laughs> and they were very important on tour. You know, they influenced the mood. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it, it, it was great. And, and he was always so enthusiastic about it. He was almost a bit Asperger's epic. He was, he was very um, strange socially, and um, you know, it would, was often to be found with a jam sandwich in his pocket of his coat <laughs> in case he got hungry, not wrapped up or anything. Um, and but you know, music was just everything to him. You know, like he could, um, and he worked in. Um, Notting Hill Gate Record Exchange, which we used to go to a lot. So, yeah. So, um, you know, he was both at Mute and there. And uh, Roland liked the swell maps. And so, yeah. So, spending all his paycheck in his own, in, in the story worked <laughs> yeah. out, no doubt. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's around 86 when you... Harry, Epic, and Roland get going with these immortal yeah, souls. Yeah, Roland and I started um, trying to get it together earlier than that in '84, hmm. but uh, we tried out with a few people and it, it just didn't work out for some reason. 
and then finally um i think we thought oh uh, harry harry plays bass <laughs> and roland had just thought that harry wouldn't want to play with him right for some reason yeah like big brother thing i don't know yeah he just assumed <laughs> Well, I, with oh. with Roland, you know, there's always a lot of talk about his guitar playing, which yeah. justifiably, justifiably, but yeah. but your playing is quite prominent in in the band. Was was yeah, that something Roland you wanted it to be like that? He, yeah. he wanted it not to be just backing keyboards, you know, like play along, sort of a piano teacher type piano, you know, and. Um, he liked my melodies and stuff, so um, he we just sort of wove in and out of each other, basically. And, yeah, um, th that's what yeah. I was going to ask if that's something you you discussed, you know, when you were forming the band. I think we, yeah, we just we didn't actually talk about it. I don't think we just you know naturally did it. Right. Like he'd play something and then I'd play something that I thought fitted around it, and and it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I was still, you know, like not so confident at first, but then after, once we started playing live, you know, that was like, um, you know, you just get over that in a minute. It was so much fun. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Do you remember <laughs> the first show? Yeah, it was a mean fiddler, um, with Sonic, supporting Sonic Youth and it was packed and I went out to get cigarettes and they wouldn't let me back in because they thought that I was under 18. <laughs> I was like much older than that um, and they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a ticket and I'm saying I'm in the band but finally Roland came looking for me um, and it was you know I think I've told this story before but Harry um, forgot to turn the standby knob off on his his base and so for 10 minutes we were having technical problems and uh, I was right up the front and there were people like standing a foot away from me right in front of me you know and um, it was just nerve-wracking <laughs> just staring at you you know waiting for you to play and I was just thinking start hurry up and start <laughs> and then Roland lay down on the floor and started entertaining everyone so it was okay. <laughs> and finally we realized what the problem was and launched into the song. And I remember being really impressed by Kim Gordon's um, muscles in their arms. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the first show. I, I think like some of your first shows, you know, uh, Gun Club, I believe, was one of your first shows. Yeah, yeah. Gun Club then, um, I think... Uh, Primal Scream, yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, at um, Kentish Town, that was a brilliant gig. I really enjoyed that one. And the Moodists. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dave yep. Graney yep. did a set before us and um, told his long, laconic stories, mm -hmm. and um, that was great, yeah. Do you know who the Moodists uh, are? Australian yeah. band, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by that stage, all of those people were friends, you know, so mm -hmm. that was wonderful as well. And I loved the gun club. You mm -hmm. know, I thought they were just fantastic. It seems like the recording sessions for the, for the first LP were spread out over 
a number of days at a number of different studios. Do you do you recall the sessions at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think we were working with Flood at first. Mm-hmm. Roland always had a good eye for a, a good sound producer <laughs> um, or mixer, as it, as he was then. And um, but we were doing little bits here and there, um, sort of dead studio type, you know, like the tail end when someone else couldn't turn up yep. or something because it was cheaper. Yeah. And um, and so we were just sort of fitting in where we could. And <clears throat> so we, you know, do Marry Me and something else one day and then, you know, a month later we'd do. So it was very choppy and changey. Yeah, we worked in about four different studios, um, owned by one owned by the Kinks. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> One, uh, the garden, yeah, lots of places. And then we worked with Alan Mulder, who was fantastic. He was really good. That was on the first album. It was a very broken up uh, experience, you know. While we were making the record, we really didn't feel like a band as yet. You didn't run into Ray or Dave Davies by any chance? No, (laughs) no. Too bad. <laughs> Not at all. That would have been that would have been good, but no, the legend stayed away. Yeah. <laughs> stayed home. Now, you start doing some touring at this time too. I yes. believe around Germany. Uh, yes, we did Germany and Fra- we did France and Holland. I think the first one that we ever did was Tav Belko. Oh yeah. Um. Yep. Yeah. And um, I like France because we got cigarettes on our rider. I've given up now, but at the time, that yeah. was a good thing. Um, and then we went and we had a great audience in in Holland, Germany, Austria, and also in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny how different cultures like different music. And they were very big on Australian music yeah. in Europe, mainland Europe. Whereas England was still uh, finding us hard to slot into. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think the birthday party had been and gone and they'd been the big thing and then there was a sort of backlash against that. And I remember the first album, um, it said something about us being goths and we didn't think we were goths at all. Um, But then, you know, you look back at photos and you think, oh, yeah, we can see how that happened. Um, <laughs> but it, it was just brilliant. And uh, we played with Sonic Youth in, you know, uh, different places in Europe, and that was great as well. We played and supported them in Holland, and they were always so good to us, you know, and they always gave us a good... Um, you know, said something nice about us to the crowd and got them excited, and that was lovely. Do you know, this is speculation on my part, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if they were the, the connection with SST. In, they, in were. The, they were. They yeah. were, yeah. 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 Epic um, was good friends with them, mm-hmm. and then we'd met Lydia, um, who wasn't really to do with SST, but she was friends with Sonic Youth, and so um, it was through... Um, Sonic Youth that we got with SST and it was um, epic as well 
because um, Epic was always on to the American side of things, right? Making sure it happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he had had the records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did indeed. Yeah, yeah. and um, I remember him uh, to this day playing playing me, uh, you know, Red Cross and Dinosaur and Junior or whatever they were called. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and gotta listen to this. Gotta listen to this. And we really like Sonic Youth. Mm -hmm. Do you recall shooting the the video for "Marry Me"? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> it was in some godforsaken warehouse in uh, near Victoria in London, and it was just freezing. It was like minus ten inside or something, and um, and there was this guy called Pinko who had his own TV station, <laughs> and. Um, he was an early digitizer and he had a camera and um, he'd offered to do the video for 50 quid, which we thought was pretty good. I don't think we really had much of an idea of what was going to happen <laughs> before we went. You know, there was, there was no money involved really and no sets as such or a few Christmas trees or something. Mm -hmm. So we just set up in this freezing, freezing place. And, um, yeah, we had, there was you know, no food or anything. So it was a sort of um, middle of winter. But I remember Roland looking really pale. <laughs> <laughs> As if he had malnutrition or something that was about to fall over. <laughs> I feel like that was maybe just his, his natural state. Uh, it was to a certain extent, but this was his natural state extended to exponentially. <laughs> now, what about your own filmmaking career around this point? Is that something you're still you were still considering? Um, I've always had. Uh, I sort of had to reinvent myself when I got back to Australia and um, started doing graphics and animation mm. things like that mm. um and then i worked on chopper um i don't know if you know an australian film called chopper oh yeah i'm i do know it yeah 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 so i did graphics on chopper um and uh the director andy was a friend of ours and um and um then i did the roland film of course yeah right. autoluminescent yeah yeah, yeah, one of the producers, and that was so hard, you know. Um, I was still reeling because Rolly and I were very, very good friends, you know, yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And uh, lived together for three years after we broke up and then lived, shared a place for the last seven years as well. Okay. In those friends. And um, so, uh, you know, we we talked about everything and... Um, yeah, it was a huge part of my life. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I was still, it was only a year later that we started doing it and that was very difficult. Yeah, it's yeah. very close to the, it must have been still yeah. really, it was very emotional. Very fresh. Yeah. yeah. Very fresh. Yeah. And it's very difficult. You don't realize until you start doing something like that that you've got to listen to footage of other people talking about you, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just weird, you know. It's like, oh, I don't know if I want to know that. <laughs> mm. What about the tribute shows? I, you've you've played at 
at some of the tribute shows. Oh, they've been fantastic. And we actually went overseas um, last year. So just before COVID happened, mm. um, we went to France and England. Okay. And um, Lydia joined us and Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream joined us and um, Conrad and uh, Janine Standish from Australia. Um, who, Janine's in a band called uh, Hate Rock and Conrad plays electronic music. Um, they were really good friends of Roland. So everyone who plays in the tribute show played with Roland. So mm -hmm. they're all people who were in his life and in his music. Um, and so it's a really great feeling doing it. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I just love it. Yeah. And I loved it and I thought, oh, this is what I should be doing. I should be doing music. And then I get back and it's COVID and everything's locked down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Melbourne's been in lockdown. This is our like 230th day or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the last 18 months. So we're only allowed to go out for exercise, shopping, and, um, you know, it's just really tough. It's, it's been a long haul there. Yeah. Yeah. What? Are you free to roam in Canada? Where I am currently, but mm. we're getting hit pretty hard with a fourth wave right now. So a, a lot of the country's starting to go back into lockdown. We yeah. should be mm. when we're, we're not. Where <laughs> I am, lots of people, including me, think we should be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. unfortunate. Um you know yeah it's been not very good for music at all yeah no it's it's been it's been tough mm. are you aware at all of the mute reissues that are being discussed yes of course Get, yes is there <laughs> any any news you can report yes there is news there is finally news um andrew taylor at mute um and uh lindsey gravina who uh must who uh, produced Teenage Snuff Film and Pop Crimes. Mm -hmm. He's remastering These Immortal Souls, both albums and some extra tracks. And we're going to re-release both albums and maybe something extra. Ah, um, yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> now It's really fantastic. Yeah, about time, I say. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, people will be very excited to hear, about, hear that. Now, these extra tracks, were there leftovers from the studio yeah there were oh. um i i don't know whether you know some of them have probably been heard before in some some form or other there's different things that we did for different mm -hmm. projects and so it'll be i think it'll be like an ep and the two albums you okay. know maybe six or so extra tracks have you heard anything recently that you hadn't heard in you know 30 years um I heard Can't Unring a Bell, <laughs> which we did for a Tom Waits oh, yeah. compilation. Yeah. Um, and I heard a couple of songs. I wrote a song called Bad and up, another one called Up on the Roof, and they're in it. And I thought, oh, my God, it almost sounds like Red Indian music, but Harry says he likes <laughs> <laughs> There's something about the rhythm. But... Um, yeah, no, you know, playing again just made me realise how much I love playing live. And But um, it just ended up that my musical career was... I did play with people back in Australia after 
um, these immortal souls broke up, but it just wasn't the same. Yeah. It's a tough act to follow. It is. That's that's the trouble. I mean, you have Roland, and then you don't have Roland. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Roland was great, uh, you know, for me as well, because, um, you know, he was always so encouraging and, um, you yeah, know, positive yeah. and helpful. He wasn't always easy to work with. He could get, you know, he expected you to be good. You know, and if you weren't in time or anything, you had absolutely no patience for it. But uh, um, he wasn't—he wasn't by no means a tyrant, mm -hmm. and uh, he always, you know, wanted a band that everybody wrote their own parts and everybody had a say. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to have a Roland S. Howard and the Immortal Souls. Yeah, that these Immortal Souls. That definitely comes through in the documentary. I—I I think it. I hope. I mean, I I, I don't know Roland. Oh, or I, di I didn't know him, but I, I it seems to paint. So you've you know, seen the documentary. I have. Yeah, yeah. What it, did you think? Well, I loved it. Uh, you know, as mm. as a fan, it's you know, mm. that's that's every fan's dream to have something like that. But I I think it probably painted a pretty accurate picture of of Roland, the the person. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to to get everything about somebody, you know,'s personality there and we had to use the bits of footage that we already had, you know, and bits of interviews that he'd already done to make conversations sort of, you know, to have someone else say something and then have Roland maybe able to answer it in some way himself. Right. Yeah. And that that took a lot of work. He wanted it I mean it was his idea. He saw the town's fans and um, documentary and he really loved the way it was warts and all and um, no glossing over any unpleasantnesses or anything and he wanted something to be like that and he wanted it to be personal and uh, it was a bit of a fight at times to get it to be you know people were worried about it being revealing or personal about certain things but um, you know that's what I wanted, what he wanted, yeah, so, yeah, I think he just wanted to be known, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, did he see it, Com a completed version of it? No, no it, it wasn't really even started by the time he, the footage that we have of him speaking is actually from another project. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, hmm. so it looks like, you know, he says, Oh, I'm Roland Best Howard, but it's actually right. Yeah, for, uh, from a film called "I'm Living on Dog Food." Oh yeah, I I know it. Yeah, or I know what by it is. By Richard yeah. Lowenstein. Yeah. yeah, it's a great film about Australian music. You can find it. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about it on our show before. That one and No Dogs in Space is that another Australian band? Dogs doc in Space. Yeah. Or, or just Dogs, dogs in, in space. space. Yeah. Yeah, uh, someone's playing Roland in that one. Oh so. really. Yeah, um, it's got Michael Hutchins in it playing um, this guy, Sam, who was in a band called Ears here at the time. And um, it's a story, but um, it's a really good film. Right on. Well, I know everyone listening to this will be really excited to, to track down those Mute Records reissues when yeah. they come out. That's really exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, thanks so much, Genevieve, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, um, 
Goodbye. Take care Lovely over there. I, I hope things yes. start looking up. Uh, they have to. Yeah, yeah, they will. Okay, thanks, Brad. Great to meet you. All right. Like I said, I could listen to that one all day. Yeah. Great, great stories, man. How about that story about, you know, seeing the saints in 1974? <laughs> 1974. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's I mean, amazing. the big takeaway for me from the interview is the mute reissues, man. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, long overdue. Can't wait to hear them. These recordings are really hard to come by these days, at least in Canada, and they are expensive for sure. Yeah. It'd be great to hear. Uh, it's not not that the first LP sounds bad, but it does sound a bit more uneven than the second full length because of all the different studios and whatnot that they went to, perhaps. Be great to hear how these two records sound with the bonus tracks. I'm glad that Genevieve mentioned the 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 track on the Tom Waits tribute. We've I don't think we've mentioned that yet, that there's a, these immortal souls on there for all the completists, but it sounds like it's going to be on the mute reissues, which is great as well. Yeah. I have a few things here, Ryan. Uh, I was looking in this. It's a Nick Cave uh, Ultimate Music Guide, one of these ones that Uncut Magazine does. Yep. And it's, it's these are always, I always pick these up when I can. Like, uh, they're super comprehensive. And they, a lot of them have, you know, interviews like republished from during the actual era that the records came out and they go through his whole career from the birthday party, the bad seeds, solo stuff, grinder man. They talk about boys next door. They talk about his books. Uh, and of course there's some stuff about Roland in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is from, uh, um, interview, I think in like 1983 where they're interviewing the whole band. It's a, he says, uh, this is Roland. How I met Lydia Lunch, we were playing in New York and I met her at the Chase Lounge. I'd been wanting to record some Velvet Morning for a while and it struck me as a good idea to do it with her, not the least because she would be good for selling the project to companies with. And it was true, they jumped at the chance. Then the German company Ripoff asked Lydia to record an album, so she got me, Mick, Genevieve and Tracy to go over to Berlin to help her do it. Of course, that would be um, that would be Mick Harvey and Tracy Pugh of mm -hmm. the birthday party. Birthday party, yep. Yeah. Uh, in the end, the Germans couldn't pay the studio bill, so the tapes are gathering dust. Well, they've since been released. That's the honeymoon and yep. red sessions. So here, here we're getting into kind of the like what you were saying about the these immortal souls kind of starting earlier. Mm -hmm. He says, because some Velvet Morning sounded good it it had this dreamlike quality and some depth i formed this group called these immortal souls with barry adamson and genevieve there were plans to release a series of 12 inches each with a different theme but no company is terribly interested so this this interview is like i said dates back to 83 83 yep yeah and and here he's talking about being in you know in a band with other songwriters he says, the songs I used to write were really personal songs, and Nick said he couldn't sing them because it was too embarrassing, like reading someone else's diary. So for a mm -hmm. long time, I was writing impersonal songs, and it's taken me a year to rediscover how to write self-expressive songs. Now I have to decide which ones 
are for the birthday party, and the other ones I keep for me, Genevieve, and Barry Adamson. Yeah. So those sessions with Lydia were kind of like the catalyst, I would say. For these immortal souls. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that that topic comes up in the autoluminescent documentary where even Nick Cave expresses some discomfort with singing Roland's lyrics, you know, like, you know how they redid Shivers. And it's funny, though, too, I was re-listening to Shivers this week, the Young Charlatans version. Yeah. It's a much faster tempo than the birthday party version. So the birthday party actually made it like slower and arguably like more more personal, perhaps. Maybe that was Nick Cave trying to put his own mark on it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Ryan, our our pal Keith, who is a Roland S. Howard mega fan, he, he actually wrote the theme song to our show. Right. Um, he sent me a copy of this um, this magazine called Users News, issue 60 from autumn of 2010. And Users News, I don't know much about them, but the whole theme of the the, the magazine is like articles around being an addict. Oh. Like there's an article called Using in Public Places. There's another article called How Did I Get Hep C? There's one called Drug Myths. And in in this uh, magazine, Users News, uh, there's actually uh, an article or what she calls a, an obituary written by Genevieve. And it's called Immortal Soul, Roland S. Howard's Defiant Last Battle. And like, I wish I could read you the whole thing, but it's quite long. But I I picked Mm. out a few excerpts here. Uh, And this is kind of the preamble. Roland Stewart Howard was a founding member of the birthday party, Crime in the City Solution, and These Immortal Souls. In December last year, he died from liver cancer after contracting hepatitis C many years earlier. Longtime lover, collaborator, and friend, Genevieve McGuckin pays tribute to this unique and gifted Australian musician. So here's Genevieve. Roland S. Howard was one of those rare and extraordinary souls who are just utterly themselves to the nth degree. He didn't try to be unique, he just was. I don't think I'll ever get used to him not being here, and I'll always curse his rotten fate. But I know I'll never regret one single moment I spent in his company. He was too young, too talented, and far too good all around to lose to a liver disease. 32 years ago, he blew into my life like some sweet hurricane, and nothing was ever the same again. He was my lover for 16 years, my best friend for most of my adult life, and by the end, we'd become each other's chosen family, as comfortably entangled as the roots of some weird old fairy tale tree. Wherever he went, heads would turn. He looked like no one else in this world. He was mm-hmm. immaculately elegant, a tall streak of a boy, androgynous, beautiful, otherworldly. His dark wolfish hair grew in strange, manga-esque swirls on his crown that couldn't help but stick up. His body and clothes somehow made great shapes together. His hooded blue eyes sparkled with wit and warmth, and in the early days, a bit of eyeliner. I was struck by how courageous he must have been to catch the last train home alone to Nuna Wadding looking the way he did. Hanging out with Roland was fun. He had a way of making the world seem bigger, brighter, and more exciting. He had something to say about absolutely everything. He mined the real world and the world of his imagination with equal delight. 
He read like a fiend, two or three books a week, loved music, of course, but also film, art, pop culture, comics, magazines. He wanted to know things, find things that moved and inspired him. He was a veritable fount of information drawn to the odd, the unusual, and the downright absurd, and would have everyone in stitches with an endless source of hilarious anecdotes. Nothing got lost in that head. He was charming, sensitive, intelligent, and uncompromising. He loved to confound expectations and always surprised me. I really can't remember ever being bored in his presence. We had a million adventures together, lived in London, Berlin, played music, went on tour, lived through heaven and hell. And like a lot of other people we knew, we used drugs. It was very much a love-hate affair. Heroin and heartbreak would always cause Roland the most angst. Roland thought he got hepatitis C very early on, before it even had a proper name. It seemed unimaginable to us then that this virus would quietly nibble away at his liver, his energy, and eventually his life. So it goes on to tell this you know, pretty tragic story about how, you know, there's a drug you can go on that uh, can actually get, get rid of hep hepatitis C, but his doctor advised him against taking it because one of the side effects is depression and was worried that, you know, Roland was already prone to depression and that this would worsen it. And by the time, you know, his hep C got to a point where it was causing serious health problems, it was too late. But he did go on it and was like on the upswing. He was doing much, much better. He was in a really good place professionally and personally. He had uh, a new girlfriend. He was working on pop crimes. And this is around the time when there was a really a renewed interest in his career. So he, right. he was gigging a lot and then uh, cruelly uh, fate intervened and he found out he had liver cancer. And uh, so that's, and then she really details in this, you know, the, the ups and downs of trying to get a liver transplant. Mm. So it's a really great piece by Genevieve. It ends with her saying there's a huge Roland shaped hole in the world. True. Yeah. Should we get into these tracks, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. All right. Let me get you started with a spaceman spiel on this 12-inch. All right. These mortal souls, marry me, lie, lie. From the album, Get Lost, Don't Lie, come these three songs from England's These Immortal Souls. With an earlier version of Blood and Sand, she said, plus... Open Up and Bleed, and the title track, this record is an ascension into hell. SST 183, 12-inch only, 4 bucks and 50 cents. It's like minimum 100 bucks now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't even remember when I got mine, but it's a cutout, and it's not in really great shape like mm. you can you cannot find these things for under 100 right now um even if they're in bad shape it's ridiculous can't wait for the mute reissues long overdue i'm gonna scoop it up instantly is yours mute or sst yeah my full length is mute but my 12 inch is sst yeah so this we haven't mentioned this yet but it's a 12 inch single came out on mute in the uk September 7th, 87, so it predated the full length, which came out mm -hmm. on October 26th of 87. Get Lost, Don't Lie was released in the U.S., that's the full length, 
on SST in February of 88, prior to the start of their US tour in March. Not sure exactly when this 12-inch single came out on SST, presumably sometime after the full length, but maybe mm -hmm. not. Yeah, hard to tell. The A-side is, of course, the single off of the full length, Marry mm -hmm. Me, Lie, Lie, same version, written by Roland. Not sure if we mentioned this last time, Ryan, but Marry Me was written when Roland was still in the birthday party, and it was actually only performed once at the band's fourth Peel session, on November 15th, 1982. So you can hear that version on their Peel Sessions comp on Strange Fruit. Uh, it's completely different to this. It's like a totally different song for the first two minutes. It, mm. Nick, Nick is singing, of course. And then the last minute of the song, it's almost like a coda. And Roland sings it, and it's kind of like the guts of this song, this version. It's almost like the audio version of Roland leaving the band. Yeah. <laughs> Something. Yeah. And this song has got a video too, which you mentioned in the interview. I think we mentioned it last time too. It's awesome with Roland doing that cool stumbling move that he does yeah. when he's on stage playing his guitar. Uh, Harry's playing a Rick and Genevieve on one of those awesome keyboards where the black and white keys are reversed. They look so badass, hey? And then uh, I love the video too because they all kind of have the same haircut. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, they, are, they are all wearing like jackets. They all just look so effortlessly cool. You know you will never be as cool as these four musicians when you watch that video. Yeah. It's funny in the interview, Genevieve makes mention of like, people were calling them goths or whatever and they they didn't like it but like i'm pretty sure i said this on the full length episode where i was like they look like vampires in that in that uh video yeah especially roland and genevieve though because they've got these black suit jackets and what almost look like you know i don't know what to call them i'm gonna use the seinfeld reference they almost look like puffy shirts or something you know like pirate shirts or uh, they're not, but it, it gives that very kind of gothic look for sure. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you they probably shared clothes. Yeah, they probably had a few puffy shirts in their yeah. closet. Yeah. Uh, when you flip it over, Ryan, for the B-side, we've got uh, their version of the Stooges classic, written by Iggy and James Williamson, Open Up James. and Bleed. Uh, yeah. It's one of the great lost Stooges tracks, which would have been on their fourth album if they would have followed up raw power in like yep. 73 or 74 instead of imploding like they did it's appeared on many releases that have come out uh, you know of live performances from that area they played it a lot in like the final year of the band and that that final year is very well documented on record some are good recordings some are just unlistenable they played it at their final show uh, which came out as metallic ko Final, I guess, until they reformed in 2003. It's also the name of a great Stooges comp on Bomp, which kind of attempts to compile the best versions of all of these unreleased tracks to, I guess, approximate what their next album would have possibly sounded like. So that's, the long lost, the long lost fourth album, yeah. Yeah. So that's a good one to check out if you're interested. So I've got you know, multiple versions of this, just like you do. I've also got multiple versions of the long lost fourth Stooges yeah. album. It's the perfect Stooges song for Roland to sing too, by oh, the way. Yeah. Like it is, it is perfect for him. 
you're right that there's a version on Metallic KO. I thought there was only a version, though, on like the expanded edition. It's not on the original single LP version, though, right? I don't think. Uh, I have both. I'm pretty sure it's on the original one. Uh, well, you know, I was really just cruising through my Stooges records from back then. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that Bomp compilation um, because I, I've listened to that one, too. I was basically like a being versions of open up and <laughs> like versions of this song all week. Yeah. And I, I came across what I think for me is the best version. It's off of this comp again, another long lost fourth stooges album. This one's called more power. Yeah. And it. this I'm sure you do. Yeah. It's, it's from 2009 on Cleopatra, probably the best sounding one for my money. And uh, but that comp on Bomp that you mentioned is another great place to hear tracks from this era with James Williamson, right? This is right before Kill City, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, yeah, that was what they did next. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's even got some of these songs like Johanna is on it, yeah, which was a Stooges yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to go pull it off the shelf, but I'm pretty sure it's on the the single original LP of Metallic Ko. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I, mi- it, I missed it. Yeah. I've I've got both too. <laughs> yeah. You got to have both. Yeah, of course. It got me thinking though about another connection they that they probably had with Sonic Youth and that was the love of the Stooges cuz remember oh, yeah. Sonic Youth was already doing like I want to be your dog by this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Berlin. Yeah. Just Berlin in general has that Iggy connection. Maybe they even jammed together or something when they played shows together on like I want to be your dog or something. These Immortal Souls and Sonic Youth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Could be called These Immortal Youths. Could. Yeah. And then there's the second song on the B-side, Blood and Sand, She Said, written by Roland and Harry. And this is early version. It's a bit different from the version on the full length. Similar mm-hmm. tempo and arrangement. Uh, this one is a bit raw to me, a bit less produced. They're both great. Uh, I really like the kind of noisy background effects on the full-length version. Hard yeah. to tell exactly what it is. It almost uh, sounds like some bowling pins getting knocked over at one point. On the full-length, there are definitely some sounds sprinkled throughout that. It's hard not to call them like industrial sounds yeah. on the first this These Immortal Souls record, and that's one of them. Yeah, uh, I have a few reviews, Ryan, that I found. Here's one from the LA Times, March of 88 written by Craig Lee. He says, Imagine a skinny, punky Australian spewing a stream of angst-ridden babble from his tortured soul, conveying an air of tatty, dissipated elegance. Set it to a crossroads brand of post-punk, Brechtian blues, and plop in some dingy cabaret, and you have a sense of what this supposedly immortal soul music is all about. A song like Blood and Sand, she said, rambles through instrumental textures that both Doors and Captain Beefheart fans might find recognizable. Hmm. But this kind of raw-voiced emoting is perfect for something like Marry Me, Lie, Lie, a very cynical wedding march, or is that a dirge? And then here's one from uh, some UK mag. Sam King is the author, and the article's entitled Hurts So Good. Uh, and it's a review of their Camden Palace show. 
If the birthday party with their abrasive, malicious music were indeed the last great rock band, then Roland S. Howard's These Immortal Souls are perhaps their most fitting epitaph, a roguish, mm. flailing, downright ugly wail. Roland's sneer prepares the way. His mouth, perpetually turned down at the corners, lends him a distracted, disinterested air, while his atrocious gold lame shirt, drainpipe trousers, and skeletal dimensions accentuate the impression that here is a man who has suffered too much and wants us to know it. This is later on in the article. The addition of a piano is a similarly inspired move. Its presence allows their Marry Me, Lie Lie, originally a birthday party John Peel track, to divorce itself entirely from its roots and become a haunting, tumbling pyramid of sound. Mm. Tumbling is a great word for it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the cover, Ryan, it uses the same image as we see on the front cover of the LP. Yeah, similar design for sure. Uh, presumably, there's no credit on this one, but presumably also designed by CIB, the wacky funsters, like on the full length. The back is actually, uh, this is from a photo session that you see a lot. There's a few different photos from this session. They used it for uh, promo photos, including the SST one. Yeah, you can tell it's the same session. Well, I guess... We know it's the same session, but Roland's also wearing, you can tell for his clothing, for sure, it's the same clothing. What is the the writing on the back from? Could you, it's not from a song, I don't think. I couldn't find it in the lyrics. I was I was going pretty quick this week, though, for sure. There is a quote here. There was a, a random quote on the back of the full length as well, too, if you recall. The quote was, go ahead, Jack, into the mainframe and flatline. That was the... The quote from the back of the full length. This one's a bit longer. Probably from a book or something. Yeah. This one says, 101 great lives. Stayed inside, became intense. Put things in new words. Got drunk till they were famous. Got smashed between a vision and a deadline. And a crowd of independent mind. No insert. Do we have dead wax? No dead wax on this one. No insert. Oh, and I think the the photos... I believe, you know, same session, probably by that. Um, the credit on the full length, anyways, is Birrer, B-I-R-R-E-R. Probably this, the same here, we're assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no dead wax, but the the label on the 12-inch has some of the lyrics right. for Marry Me, Lie, Lie, as like a spiral writing on it, yeah. which is cool. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So back when we did the full length, Ryan, we picked uh, I Ate the Knife, thinking that we would use the title track for this mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But I could go with the Stooges song too. I, like, I think we have to go with the title track, but... Yeah, the Stooges song is great. I think I may have even kiboshed it because I wanted to make sure that we had like a, a song penned by the band. as as ballot result but i agree like that might be the best cover of that stooges song with roland it's a perfect fit it's not a throwaway for sure oh no 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 as a b-side i mean Mm -mm, no i don't think i would put you know the early version of blood and sand and again i want to put a roland where i want to put a song penned by the band on here so my votes for marry me lie lie still yeah, me too. But I, I listened to the full length again this week too and 
Me too. Like, all yeah. of the songs are good, including Blood and Sand. This is a great yeah. little EP, for sure. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks to Genevieve McGuckin for being on the show. It was so awesome talking to her. She was just so nice and accommodating and friendly. Yeah, you bet. It's a great pairing, as I said, with episode 164 and Harry Howard's interview. You really get a lot out of it when you listen to both of these. And keep on digging deep. There's so much more to discover uh, with these bands and related artists. And can't wait for the reissues. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, the Secret Marines are returning. Oh, boy. It's SST-184, Zoog's Rift, Non-Entity Water 3, Fan Black Data. And we've got a special guest, Ryan, Willie Lappins on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.